Welcome back everyone to Let's Rethink This. I'm Abby Berger and today we have another episode with Independence Center members Pearl and Michelle. Pearl and Michelle recently sat down with me to talk about celebrating Black history um, in a recent episode, but there were a couple of topics we just did not have enough time to get into, so we thought we'd sit down again and chat a little bit more. So welcome back Michelle and Pearl. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Michelle, um, we hear a lot about, uh, we're just going to kind of jump right back into it. So we hear a lot about some of these icons of Black History Month, like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr., but I know there are a lot more. So who are some of the other people we may not know about and how does the Conversation Starts Here group celebrate these people? While there's so many people of significance that we've covered, it's hard to select just one. But I would say in honor of February being Black History Month and March being uh, Women's History Month, that I would uh, pick a Black woman. I know in our last podcast, we touched a little bit on... um, the uh, judge nominee, Kataji Brown-Jackson. So I would say that we should spotlight Maya Angelou. There might be some people who are not familiar with Maya Angelou, so I'll just give a little brief history. Um, She was a person of enormous talent. And while many may know her as a writer, poet, she was also a singer, songwriter, an actor who performed in several plays. And on top of that, she received dozens of awards and more than 50 honorary degrees. She was even awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2010 by President Obama. Uh, Currently, it's very exciting that she is still making history by being the first African-American woman to appear on the U.S. quarter This is part of the American Women Quarters Program. She will be the first of five women to be recognized for their accomplishments on new 25 cent coins. That's really exciting news. So Pearl, what does that mean to you as a black woman to see yourself represented on a US coin? I think it's nice, but I think the, uh, you know, could have put somebody else in that place. I don't understand why they chose her. Who were some of the other Black women that you would love to see on a U.S. coin? Probably like Harriet Truman. I'd love to see her. Yeah, she's made some really, really impactful, or she's had a lot of impact Yeah. in Black history. So, yeah, I definitely agree with you. Well, I think it's exciting, you know, nonetheless. And Michelle, when when are those coins going to be out in circulation and what are they going to look like? They actually were released on Monday, February the 7th, and they are in circulation now. Um, The U.S. Mint will also issue 20 quarters over the next four years, acknowledging women and their achievements and how they have helped shape the nation's history. Uh, the coins with Maya Angelou on them 
has a bird soaring upwards in the background while Maya Angelou appears with her arms outstretched and beams of sunlight are haloing her. And I really like how the bird was used on the coin in honor of her famous memoir called I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I thought that was a very nice personal touch and very creative. I'm sure Maya Angelou would have approved. Yeah, I love that. That's, that is a really nice personal touch. I, I don't know that I would have noticed that. So I'm glad that you brought that to our attention. And our discussion on Maya Angelou wouldn't be complete without mentioning how she has been such a great inspiration in helping people to reach their full potential and how she helped encourage people to turn their dreams into a reality despite overwhelming odds. And a fun fact about Maya Angelou that a lot of people might not know is that she is actually a St. Louisan. She was born here in the Compton Hills neighborhood. So she's definitely our hometown hero. I did not know that fact. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. Pearl, you have another event coming up celebrating Sydney Poitier, right? Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that event? Uh, yeah, we have the movie talking about Sydney Poitier, and the movie is is mainly about him uh, having um, a relationship with a white woman, and uh, the parent, either parents, I don't think approved of the uh, relationship because of the colors. But Sydney Poitier, what I thought that he broke down, you know, in the movie is that he t- told his father that to look at him as a man and not like a black man. And I thought that was interesting. And when was that movie released? Like in the seventies or. I don't, I don't think so. I think it was released uh, much earlier than that because it had, uh, you know, two more other stars. Yeah. So, so it really wasn't the norm to have interracial um, relationships, right? Well, not back in those days, Sydney Portia, yeah, you know, wasn't too many uh, interracial movies back though in those days, you know, black and white couldn't mix like that. Pearl, thank you for sharing about that movie. Uh, that sounds like a really interesting movie. It probably was a challenging movie at the time, you know, being released um, in the late sixties and that really not being the norm for the, for the time. So I can imagine why that would be so controversial. And I'm glad that you guys are going to host a screening and discussion about it. So Michelle, can you share more about his background and why he was such an important figure in black history? Sure. Um, I can start us off with a couple of fun facts about him. Oddly enough, when his family was vacationing, In Miami, Florida, they were surprised when his mother unexpectedly gave birth early, which automatically granted Mr. Poitier U.S. citizenship. So he had dual citizenship in both the U.S. and the Bahamas. So most people don't know that he's uh, from the Bahamas. Um, In the spring of 1945, when he was 18 years old, he went to New York and attended the American Negro Theater in Harlem. And this is where his enthusiasm for acting began and was cultivated. 
Uh, Mr. Poitier was a brilliant actor appearing in 57 movies. A couple of well-known ones are A Raisin in the Sun, To Sir With Love, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. What made him so revolutionary as an actor was that he never allowed anyone to typecast him in stereotypical roles for a black male actor. For example, he would not play a doorman, gas station attendant, a custodian, a garbage collector, and so on. He refused to play those parts. His insistence helped to completely change the climate in the film industry for himself as well as other black actors. As a result of this, he had a huge influence that directly encouraged and impacted, impacted men of the black community and the careers they chose. So while he is well known for his accomplishments as an actor, not everyone knows that he was also equally as committed to being a humanitarian. He was a faithful friend to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was deeply devoted to the civil rights movement and publicly worked alongside others who were fighting for the cause. He stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial for the March on Washington when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech on August 28, 1963. In 1966, he participated in the March Against Fear that took place through one of the most deeply segregated areas in Mississippi. Sidney Poitier, like Maya Angelou, were very humble and used their celebrity as a platform. He chose to use his fame to fight for freedom and to use his fortune to donate substantial amounts of money to further the fight for human rights. That's awesome. I didn't know that about him. And um, I don't know if you guys know this, but do you know who Cicely Tyson is? Yes, I do very well. So she's a black actress. She just passed away um, last year or the year before, but she, I read her um, autobiography and she did a lot of the same thing in her career as an actress. She would only choose roles that elevated black women and would often turn away from roles that portrayed black women in these stereotypical settings. And the only exception to that is when she appeared in the help, um, as the maid, the older maid, but otherwise throughout her career, she was very, very particular about what roles she played because of its impact on kind of that stereotypical view of black women in, um, films. So that's pretty interesting that he did the same thing. I think so too. And I think what makes it even more meaningful is it didn't just affect the acting role, the roles that black or, you know, black men or women would take, but it stretched out much further than that. It went out into the community and to just the average person's life, the yeah. average, you know, black man or woman as to what they saw themselves doing as a career and what they would accept and wouldn't accept. I think that's pretty neat. Okay. So I want to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit more about something we touched on very briefly in the first episode of this 
um, two-part episode, we talked a little bit about how there's a reluctance to seek out mental health treatment, especially for those living in predominantly Black communities. So Pearl, can you share kind of what has been the Black experience when it comes to receiving proper health care for both physical and mental health? Like what's been the experience in the United States for Black people in healthcare? Well, the experience, I think, for the majority of the Black people when it comes to proper health care and physical, physical and mental uh, health care, the Black community often deal with stigma, discrimination that can be compromised care when it comes to like our resources, our community voices, the poverty lines, and more symptoms of emotional distress. Like uh, Black people, they distress more quicker and have a very high emotional distress, sadness, hopelessness, and the right, getting the right type of providers. And that the African-Americans that seek mental health care having stigma against them. They do not want the mental illness to be labeled as a weakness for them. Police, victims like viewing videos like George Floyd, 25% Blacks seek mental health care compared to 40%. Whites, they're whites. Most of the time, they don't have any insurance, no transportation, no money or a way to get to their doctor appointment, access to a phone. What can we do about that? What can we do? That's the same way to get to their doctor's appointment or even access to a phone. What they can, we do bring awareness, change the stigmatizing language around the mental illness. Educate our families, friends, colleagues, become aware of our own attitudes and beliefs toward the Black community to reduce implicit bias and negative assumptions. Mental illness does not discriminate against no one, age, color, or race, religion. Anyone can live with mental illness Each day we interact with people of variety of black backgrounds, the more we understand the differences to make us, regardless of culture, no shame and having mental illness, regarding of culture and background. And I'll give you a good example like the other day and real life experience myself just the other day. I think that was Friday. Okay, my my son is under the mental mental illness society is having a therapist and the therapist meet with him once a week, you know, because he suffered with a lot of depression when I first got him, you know, as a young, young child. And it, it's hard to get from, from my home to his home at my age, you know, with the direction of the bus or getting there. We had to catch like, uh, what I, I left out before my son did to get over there. To the, to the bus, I had to walk across a bridge would take me about 20, 20 to 25 minutes to cross, to get there, to catch my bus, to get him there. 
and uh, I went on ahead before him, and uh, and I told him, "Come on, you know, follow me." And he said, "Okay, I'll be at the door." Let it behold, I got all the way down to my destination to get to the bus, and I looked around, and still I didn't see my grandson. So I finally I got him on his phone, and I called him. I said, "Well, where where are you at?" I'm down on King's Highway. He said, like, 30 minutes opposite of where I was at. So I came back home, and then he called me. He was like, well, I told you go on over there, and I'll meet you there, you know. After I got home, then I had to go back, you know, another 20, 25 minutes to get back to the bus stop, you know. But I had finally made it. It had pushed me back an hour, you know, for the meeting and stuff, but I made it. And that was a just a struggle, you know, no car, you know. I, if I had to hit the money, you know, which you don't have to finance like that, I would have uh, called a Hoover or something, you know. But, you know, just watching some of the people in real life that do have mental is- issues, don't even have bus fare or car fare or anything or even a phone, you know, to even get to the resources that they need. Yeah, I think that's a really great example because it shows, you know, how much effort you had to put in just to get to this appointment. And that's probably the experience of a lot of people who don't live close to public transportation or the public transportation that they need is a 20 minute walk away. And, you know, you have to go to work, you have to do all of these other things. And so if you're spending 20 minutes walking to a bus, then the additional time riding the bus then going to your appointment, then having to, you know, take the bus back and walk back. That's a big chunk of your day that is devoted to going to the doctor. And if you have other conflicting responsibilities, like maybe you have a child at home, or maybe you have a job that you need to get to, I can see why people would just choose not to go to Um, a doctor's appointment when, when that challenge of getting there and getting to the doctor is so great. So I think I, I love that point. I think it really speaks to the issue of accessibility of providers in our community. And Michelle, I, I know you've done a lot of research on this topic. So can you tell us kind of how, I know Pearl spoke to spoke about um, accessibility, but there's also a lot of mistrust in the medical field from Black Americans. And can you just share a little bit more about how and when that mistrust first developed? Yes. Within the African-American community, there are many harsh and disturbing realities that have led to mistrust of the medical field as a whole. So I think I touched on this in the last podcast, when we pull back the layers to further look beneath these reasons for mental health mistrust, we find it goes all the way back before the Civil War. So that's a really long time. Um, When medical experiments were conducted on Black slaves, white doctors have done excruciatingly painful procedures believing that Black people's skin was thicker, also believing that they had less sensitive nerve endings. 
So the doctor's experiments range from performing brain surgery, electrical shock, gynecological, amputations, and many, many more procedures, um, unimaginable procedures without using any type of anesthesia. So what happened to them was very sadistic. It's extremely difficult to think of the pain and cruelty that all of these people were subjected to. It's really um, absolutely horrifying. Another experiment that people are probably more familiar with is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. It was done on African-American soldiers beginning in 1932 all the way, believe it or not, to 1972. Um, soldiers along with wives, children, and even some grandchildren had their health affected. So there's a long history of trauma from the medical system that has been passed down from one generation to another and so on in the African-American community. It's very understandable why people um, are scared and they don't trust the medical community and it prevents some from seeking physical and mental health treatment. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That is, it is um, the horrible reality of healthcare for Black Americans in the U.S., you know, and, and that is, I think the more we share about it and talk about those experiences, the more understandable it is to everyone else on why that population might be more hesitant to seek out healthcare. I think, you know, we talk about generational trauma. We talk about things that get passed down from, um, you know, your parents, your grandparents. And if someone as late as 1972 was part of that experiment, that's not that far from 2022, you know, that's, that's pretty close. So we have a long way to go and we're not that far from from that recent past. And I think, um, Pearl, you know, I kind of want to hear from you. What do you think the most important thing that we can do as a community to have more open conversations and help people be more willing to find the support that they need, both for their physical health care, but for, but also for their mental illness? Like, you know, I mentioned before what we could do is we can go to our political leaders, you know, probably meet with our senators, you know, and and uh, make them aware of what's going on. You know, just like at the Independence Center, it used to be uh, a couple of years, where years ago when we was at the West Fan House, where we would write letters, you know, we could write letters, you know, to the senators and stuff, to voice our pain or calling, you know, to voice our pains, to let them know, the, the kind of situation that we need, you know, or the kind of situation that we are might be in, that we might need help, you know. I think educating those around us is essential. And even doing things like this podcast where we're having this conversation and maybe someone listening did not know a piece of this information, that moves the needle. It opens up the conversation. It allows people 
to learn more and be more understanding and then develop policies like you were talking about, Pearl, that support people living with mental illness. And, and all of those things have to be taken into account when you're creating policies, you know, accessibility, transportation, willingness to even acknowledge that you have a mental illness and the stigma around it. So I I definitely think you're right with advocacy being such a big piece of the puzzle. And Michelle, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. I would say to do exactly what we are doing here today and in our last uh, podcast, Um, not being afraid to have open and honest conversations, uh, which has a direct ripple effect because it reaches, we're talking about it, it reaches our listeners, the listening audience, who then can share the information with their circle of friends and family, who in turn shares with their friends and family. And in this way, the ripple effect can continue to touch the lives of others. We can unite in support and encouragement of one another because we are definitely stronger together. I think you're absolutely right. And I hope that this discussion does result in some rippling conversations amongst our listeners and their families and friends. I think it's been another great discussion. I certainly learned something and I hope our listeners did too. I want to thank you both for doing a second episode with me. Um, there's, there's so much to talk about and we definitely wanted to give it the space it needed to really address all of these topics that we wanted to talk about. So I appreciate you doing a second episode with me. Um, for anybody listening at home, I wanted to remind you again, that we have a resource page on our website. So if you or someone, you know, is living with a mental illness or a substance use disorder, you can go to our website. It's www.independentcenter.org and click on the link. Um, click on our resources page to learn more. So thank you guys for listening. We'll be back with a new episode next week. And um, if you're not already following us on Instagram, give us a follow. Our handle is at let's rethink this pod. Thank you, Michelle and Pearl for doing this again with me today. Thanks, Abby. It's always a pleasure.